This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, politics of the United States. Today, we're joined by the anchor of Good Morning America, George Stephanopoulos. His level of experience in covering the political world is eclipsed only by his vast experience working in it. We'll talk politics and polyoptics with one of the biggest stars of ABC News. Then, meet Matt and Matt, two brilliant Washington insiders. Matt Bennett, founder and senior vice president for public affairs at the centrist think tank Third Way, and Matt Makoviak, founder and president of Potomac Strategy Group. Both men have worked inside the White House, and we'll get their take on the communications challenges before the president and congressional leadership. That's all coming up on Polyoptics. Josh, these weeks get crazier and crazier, and as we get closer and closer to deadlines, the political communication seems like it can't get any higher, yet the fever pitch continues to compound. Adam, I just got back from Europe, and I tried to stay up as late as I could to see these competing addresses to the nation of President Obama and Speaker Boehner. I I mean, as we'll hear, I think, in the guests that we're talking to today, George Stephanopoulos and Matt Bennett and Matt Makoviak, uh, you're almost both of these sides are almost out of ammo on the communications front. Uh, they've used every weapon in the book, and now they just have to get a deal done because we can't be brought to the brink from a communication standpoint over and over again the way we have even through this week. Josh, you are absolutely right. Uh, everybody's you know out of arrows in their quiver. Every play in the playbook has been run from a communications perspective. And uh, I'm really looking forward to being able to talk to somebody who I have the greatest respect for, but Americans know uh, who has amazing credibility in George Stephanopoulos. And uh, I think the best thing to do is just jump right in and get George on this, this polyoptics broadcast. We're very lucky to be joined today on Polyoptics, our 20th episode with George Stephanopoulos, the host of ABC News' Good Morning America, uh, and for both Adam Belmar and I, a colleague in different parts yeah, of George's really life. this is really something. a treat for me. Thank you, guys. Well, we, we appreciate all you've done for us, George, and it's great to be uh, with you on the air here at Polyoptics. So, George, it's we're 18 months into your run at Good Morning America, I think, um, and people and myself and Adam are both curious about compared to uh, life at the, on the This Week chair and certainly the White House before that, how's your quality of life changed? Uh, uh, how, how's your career going? Uh, my, my career, I, I think it's going okay. I'm having a good time most of the time. Um, quality of life, well... You're spending more time with, with the girls, aren't you? Mm, it's different. I'm I'm getting weekends. That's a big that's a that's a big difference. Now the the trade off is I I never see them in the morning because um my alarm hits at two thirty. I'm out the door mm. at around around three fifteen. Uh, so that's that's different. Although you know basically I go to bed with the girls and uh, just they sleep a little later than I do. Um, you know the show's been going very very well. It's a uh, 
it's been a stretch because I've had to deal with so many different kinds of stories uh, every day. On the other hand, I've been a little bit blessed the last year and a half. I guess like the last decade or the last two decades has been chock full of news. So there's uh, no shortage of, of important uh, news to cover every day, and it's a terrific audience. I watched the show uh, one of the days this week, um, and it was the way you might think a Stephanopoulos-hosted show would begin with Jake Tapper and Jonathan Carl, one from the White House, one from Capitol Hill, talking about the ongoing debate over the debt ceiling. But then as you got through the 7 o'clock hour and into the 8 o'clock hour, you had to deal with Julia Roberts and Christy Turlington and airbrushing their photos and advertising. You had to deal with coyotes run amok, Pierce Morgan and uh, and hacking in Great Britain. So how do you how do you read yourself into these issues and feel well, confident just, enough uh, to talk you, about? The good thing about it is that um, you know I'm generally a curious person, but I do try to find something uh, in every story that I'm interested in, uh, which helps me uh, get excited about. It. Now you can't love every single story you do every single day, and there's no question that this audience is quite a different audience uh, from the one I was used to on this week. Uh, at the same time, because it's such a, a big audience, um, you know, a lot of the newsmakers I've dealt with in the past want to use this as a platform. I've interviewed President Obama many more times as anchor of Good Morning America than I ever would as anchor of This Week. Yeah, I, I've noticed that. And uh, and one of the things that I think is is most interesting uh, about your time at GMA, it's you you really have been there during a time of rejuvenation. I mean, you've got a new news anchor. You've got Lara Spencer back in your crew there. And it seems like you guys are having a phenomenal time and just a great vibe between all of you. Having worked at GMA uh, before I came to work with you at this week, uh, it seems like there's a lot more fun on that set than I recall when I was there. We're really starting to gel, and it's you know, we've seen some real progress as well. We've really we've really closed the gap with the Today Show, and that's gratifying as well. Watching that show this week, I mean, I could tell that when you had Tapper and Carl uh, connected, you were almost back home. It's in, what I know. It's what I love. Zone. It's what I care about. And this is a truly epic story. So two questions then. One, on a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week basis, what, how do you keep connected to Washington the way you did all those years at This Week and those years of the White well, House. the miracles of modern technology, first of all. And, and uh, you know, BlackBerry phones, you can you can be in touch with a lot of people uh, all day long. Also, I think it's the way I, you know, my my duties at the network go beyond anchoring GMA. I am the chief political correspondent. You know, I anchored the president's uh, and Speaker Boehner's addresses on Monday night. I've been on World News a couple times this week covering this, so it's really part of my responsibilities to cover it. The basic of the way I do it is I split my day in two. Um, I generally deal with GMA from 3.30 until the show goes off at 9. We have a short meeting afterwards, basically 3.30 and 9.30. Uh, then I take off for a couple of hours, uh, work out, sometimes take a short 15, 20-minute nap, get lunch, and then go back in uh, to ABC in the afternoon, generally around 1 or one thirty, And that's the time when I really focus on that part of the job, make my phone calls, do my research, uh, follow up with people, and stay in touch. You know, George, I, I want to point out for folks that, uh, I mean, they probably know you today as you know, the chief political correspondent at ABC News. You've been the, the anchor of this week. But, you know, very early on in your career, you were on Capitol Hill, and you have a phenomenal insight, uh, having run the floor for... Uh, um, Dick Gephardt and, and, and being involved in politics in various levels, uh, even the highest levels uh, of what goes on in Washington. Well, what I've, really felt, I've really felt that the last couple of weeks because I feel personally I've been involved in 
all the precursors to this debt fight. Mm -hmm. You know, back when I was working for uh, Congressman Gephardt uh, was the time when everybody was trucked off to Andrews Air Force Base for the first big bipartisan budget deal between President Bush at the time and the Democratic leaders in Congress. Uh, and it was an it was a months long battle. Uh, the Issues were almost exactly the same, uh, whether Republicans would give on taxes, whether Democrats would give on spending uh, and entitlements. The government did actually shut down for a couple of days uh, then. And it, it turned out then that, and it shows how different the times are in some ways, that uh, after several weeks and months, uh, Democrats and Republicans were able to come together around an agreement that actually did really make a dent in the deficit for several years. And of course, uh, went through it again, and Josh would remember this back in the government shutdown in 1995. Um, very similar uh, to what we're going through mm -hmm. right now. The government shutdown then was far more severe. But this time, uh, the stakes are even higher. Because you know, back in 1995, Josh would remember, the idea of not extending the debt limit was on the table, but we never really got close to the day. Yeah. when America yeah. wouldn't be able to borrow anymore. At the time, it was the first time it had really come up, so Secretary Rubin was able to find ways to maneuver and extend his borrowing authority for months far beyond the crisis, and so we never hit that point. This time, we're right up against it. And while you had to stay at work, a few of us got the opportunity to go to L'Oreal Plaza in the middle of the afternoon <laughs> and have some days off. Considered essential employee <laughs> at the time. Um, but <laughs> along with that exponentially ramped up communications. So if you have the key negotiators sequestered at Andrews Air Force Base, they're kind of hived off. Sort of. Uh, well, at least then, sort of hived off, but more importantly, no Blackberries, right. no internet, you know, very and, rudimentary cell phones. You would, and you, you don't would have deal a with one news cycle a day, not 24. And you don't have um, a president running off to the East Room and doing a, a a, a colonnade walk to give a speech of great gravity multiple times, and you don't have uh, members on the Hill giving competing press conferences every and, day. And right? you didn't have Fox or MSNBC. That's right. You didn't have two partisan channels. That is one of the most significant changes when it comes to communication, George. And uh, and I wonder, you know, as you report on this every day, uh, it, do you see it strategic? I mean, we're in a brinksmanship scenario here where everything's got to be right up to the last minute and there's got to be a deadline but these 24-hour news cycles that you point out are are driving uh, what's going on out of these leadership offices uh, do they take your calls or are they too busy trying to track down a reporter these days I mean a reporter <laughs> or a camera uh, no you can you can get through to people but you know this is this is uh, I think one of the things that's also made it made it more both easier and more difficult to report at the same time you can sit at your desk and find out basically what anybody said at any meeting at any time just by working working the web. Um, now, that doesn't give you the same. There's nothing like actually being on the phone or sitting down with somebody to really get the nuance uh, and, the, and, and the texture uh, behind uh, about what's going on. But you can you can get all of the almost all of the raw data uh, at any time. There is one other big, I, I, I think, pretty big difference in the dynamics between um, 1995 and today, at the time, I the the hard line, I think, in the Republican Party was being driven, was ran top down. I, I think it was led by Speaker Gingrich and, and 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 Leader Army, and they were rallying their troops about their vision 
of what they thought the Republican Party should do. What's this? It's very different from what's going on right now, where uh, Speaker Boehner and and to some extent his leader Eric Cantor are being uh, pushed by their grassroots, by their Tea Party members, who they really can't control. Let's take a week without a crisis, if there is one. A week when eyes are not so focused on Washington and they may be more focused on the courtroom drama of Casey Casey Anthony. (laughs) And I'm wondering about uh, the process of putting together a show like Good Morning America or putting together the editorial rundown for, for World News and wondering, when I look at my BlackBerry and go to www.drudgereport.com, I almost see the rundown for a show based on what's up there. How are your producers and your editorial decisions driven by sort of where eyes are being drawn from? Oh, a lot. And, you know, our our producers have their tweet decks up all the time, uh, are following, you know, the the trending issues on on Google and Twitter uh, and Facebook and trying to get a sense of what people are paying attention to. Now, it's always a balance in a show like that between being responsive to the audience and trying to lead uh, the audience. And, you know, we don't always get that balance right, but you want to get some mix of, uh, in a show like GMA, uh, between what people need to know and what they just want to know more about, what they're interested in, what, what, what they think is fun. Going back now, what, 20 years, the role that you had in the White House with President Clinton mythologized by Adrian Lester in Primary Colors, Michael J. Fox in The American President, Rob Lowe in West Wing, um, and perhaps in a more cinema verite way, uh, yourself in The War Room. How, beyond the nonfiction documentary, how accurately did those pieces of fiction describe the job that you had starting in, what, late 1991? They were all a little bit different. I think on West Wing I was more... um Josh Lyman. Josh Lyman, right. Josh Lyman. My job was a little bit more like that than Rob Lowe's, who's a little bit more uh, of a speechwriter. Um, the Michael J. Fox, from American president. I actually met with him uh, before he uh, before he took that role, and we talked. I about remember it. Rob Reiner was moving around town a lot. He, he as much was, and uh, my mom said he got my walk down perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> but the, in the, I, I think that was probably the closest was the the role he was playing there to the role I played in the White House. Let's talk about the war room for a second, because I've always wanted to ask you, how conscious were you of those cameras? And did you have any idea that it would shape perceptions of you in no, the months I and mean, years to come? Zero idea. You know, th- this, those things, you know, at the time when they came in, which wasn't until the convention, you know, the the dirty secret of that movie is that the, the real footage that they shot is only from late August on. And I think they were in the war room maybe three or four times, which is a test testament to his skill. Pennybacker's incredible yeah. uh, skill. He wasn't there that much, uh, but he was able to, to create an amazing uh, film. And, you know, when they came to us, first of all, we didn't know what was going to happen in the election, but even more than that, it felt like it was, you know, some film that was going to show up on PBS on a Friday night at 10 o'clock. <laughs> and it, it, I was really stunned by the kind of success that ended up uh, having what it did capture was the feel, I think, the insurgent feel of that campaign, and it got Carvel dead on. It got Carvel dead on. It got uh, Eller and Borston and <laughs> Heather Beckel and so many other people dead on, didn't it? I'm looking forward to the day when my kids can actually understand it. They've actually, when we've been channel surfing a couple of times, uh, stopped and seen it, and it's almost like they don't even think it's me. But one day I might be able to explain it. 
you you talk uh, very honestly in your book All Too Human about some of the great moments and the tough moments uh, in your time with Governor and then President Clinton. Can you remind for those who uh, still want to get the book at Amazon.com, All Too Human by George Stephanopoulos? Yeah, used for uh, eighty four cents. What, <laughs> what were some of those uh, those very high moments and those very well, low moments? Nothing like election night. Uh, 1992. I mean, it's just by the time it happened, we sort of knew it was going to happen, but you still uh, can't replicate that feeling of, you know, being part of a campaign that started in a paint store on Main Street in Little Rock, and then all of a sudden, the man's going to be president of the United States. It was huge. Um, uh, the government shutdown was both uh, a, a a blessing and a curse, and a high point and a low point at the same time. I mean, it was it was difficult to go through. Uh, at the time, as, as you remember, there were uh, a fair amount of infighting inside the White House, inside the White House, a lot of factions um, who really were struggling uh, to you know, get their way and guide the, the entire direction of the presidency. I do say in the book, right in the book, that in the end, I thought President Clinton did a, a, a kind of remarkable job, much like Franklin Roosevelt, in balancing off the competing factions in a way a president has to and coming up with a uh, a course that made sense for his party and the country. You are listening to Polyoptics on Sirius XM 124. We're joined by George Stephanopoulos. You know, George, as, as many of us grow up, we, we've probably spent some time thinking about what it might be like to be on the cover of Time magazine someday. <laughs> April 1994, you made it. Uh, how does that rate um, among your members? In the worst memories? possible way. That was one of the low points. I would I would say Deepwater is, you know, Time magazine, uh, which is, I think, one reason why I have sympathy for uh, any politician who's accused of something. Um, I, I tend to, to take an extra beat before I jump on the bandwagon because in that case, you know, Time Magazine had me going to jail uh, mm-hmm. for something where I ended up being nothing more than a witness uh, in a case. Um, this was all over the, the uh, it was over the Whitewater investigations and how the White House was dealing with the Whitewater uh, investigations. And I actually couldn't believe when I saw the first two paragraphs of the story how they could possibly have have jumped that far now the that was a lesson in damage control for myself because you know you're on the cover of time magazine uh with that kind of a picture that kind of a headline that kind of a lead uh suggesting you broke the law you know you tend to think you're gonna lose your job pretty quickly (laughs) um but uh first of all uh, president clinton knew the truth and 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 supported me but uh what i went out and did was i think it broke on a Shows the difference in the news cycles. Then I guess we really cared. time appeared on Monday night instead no, no. of Friday, right? No, at that time, no. Then it was Fridays. They didn't switch till Monday till much later. But at the time, you know, the news weeklies used to break. Uh, stories used to wait for that Friday afternoon or Saturday morning because to set up a new news cycle. Now they just break it whenever right. they get it. Um, and I spent Saturday giving interviews, defending myself, and knowing that in some ways I would be. Uh, also um, tried on the Sunday morning talk shows. And one of the things I was most gratified by is I told my side and, you know, fair-minded people looked at the facts, including a lot of Republicans who were on the shows that morning and said, you know what, we don't see anything there. And it kind of went away within 48 hours. And and I remember we looked into this at the time and we found uh, the 
wire photo on which this was based, and we realized how closely this was cropped. And that if that was you, actually a, what you all you see is Clinton holding his head and me standing over his shoulder looking very concerned, which I always looked concerned anyway. But um, there were I think there were four or five other people in the in the right. photo and in the room. It's just a big Oval Office yeah. shot and a photo editor. If they want to show downbeat Clinton, they'll show a frown or a head or a hand on the head. If they want to show triumphant Clinton, they'll they'll do that and they mm-hmm. decide what to do. But this was. It was a little grainy, uh, and we'll we'll put it on the website. Actually, Adam so just pulled this closer. I don't even look that concerned, really. Uh, but it was just this. It <laughs> By was like comparison. The one, By sh- comparison. It was the one-two shot that I they could had. use a haircut. And do you remember, George, <laughs> a few weeks later, President Clinton went to the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and we had great fun with this because we made about a dozen alternative Time magazine covers that they could have Boy, used. Boy, and every... Every year in Clinton's presidency, those White House Correspondents' Dinner skits got more and more and more elaborate and better. Yeah, we've actually we've had some fun going back over those. Uh, we had Mark Katz on a few weeks ago. <clears throat> this is, yeah, he's well, he's the genius behind Isn't it. Isn't he? Um, you know, Josh and I have been wanting to get you to uh, perhaps talk to us a little bit about uh, what we appreciate is the president, uh, President Obama, not seeming to have the kind of enthusiasm or. Uh, Experience that that President Clinton uh, or even sometimes President Bush had on the road, you know, uh, looking at this presidency in comparison to to others, I'm wondering what what you appreciate and how you perceive. What his do you mean ability. by that? What you- well, I think I'm just we're just talking about those nights. I mean, when I was an advanced guy, and the plane came up, and out came Bill Clinton, Bruce Lindsay, George Stephanopoulos, Didi Myers, uh, and the guy said. Uh, Let's do our event. Let's have dinner and let's go shake some more hands until midnight, like the like the bus tours in the New Jersey uh, 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 auto uh, track. And look, it was a wonderful time and and a person who s- drew great energy from being out there campaigning. This president does it very oh, well, f- yeah, but, but fundamentally, they're very, very, very different people. I mean, obviously, President Obama is much more introverted than President Clinton is. And he tends to, from what I can tell, draw his energy from his time alone, from his time reflecting and reading and resting and being with his family. And then he goes out charged up. Clinton, you remember this. You know, he he would wake up bleary. I'd push him into a crowd to kind of feed off the crowd and get all his energy from the crowd. I think that's one, you know, just basic personality difference to begin with. Secondly, I think it's partly a function and I actually have seen the change in President Obama over time because I think now he is, has far much more fun and gets more energy from being on the road than he used to at the beginning. I remember clearly being with him on the campaign trail in May of 2007. It was early on. Things were only going okay. And I spent a couple of days out there, and he was quite irritable and uh, you know, bothered by the schedule. And I think in part it was he actually wasn't in the physical and emotional shape. He wasn't conditioned Right for the campaign trail because he had never had to really go through it. Clinton had been through four governor's races. Right, right. He was he lived for all this. Obama had been through a very short Senate campaign, which was kind of a you know for a variety of reasons turned out to be a walkover. He just wasn't didn't have the the, the specific kind of stamina it takes for a campaign. I think he started to develop, but he didn't have it then. Uh, so we've been talking a lot on polyoptics over the last few weeks. And it's also indicative of how Obama has had has managed his presidency for three years and wondering whether this is a president who, one, uh, you know, should use the teleprompter a little less than he does Two, um, 
Hasn't he been using it a little bit less? I, I maybe, but 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 no. But he generally we've seen pictures in a small classroom, and he's got you know two two paddles in front of him uh, to talk to a, a, a classroom of twelfth graders, and uh, and I think they've got that message. Um, but I'm also seeing uh, whenever there's a, a reason to um, to give a, a speech, and you were called to the anchor chair on May first to preview the death of Osama bin Laden. Uh, President Obama walks down the cross hall to the East Room, probably appropriate in that setting. And then two or three more times since, culminating even last week, uh, and just to give an update really on on the debt negotiations, are, is is this too grand for what this message is? He using, I mean, is he, yeah. Should he be using the Oval Office more? Well, the 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 Oval Office is a step up from the East Room. Though you got to be really, I, I think you have to. You wonder if he's using just the White House for primetime addresses a little too much. It's still not as much as George W. Bush. Of course, there were a lot around 9-11 and around the wars then, I think. Um, but I was struck last Monday night. I mean, obviously, you get Osama bin Laden. You're going out talking to the country. I'm surprised. I was actually a little bit surprised he didn't do that uh, from the Oval. But I think Me he too. generally prefers to stand than to sit. But I was a little bit surprised at that. On on Monday night, it would have been inappropriate, I think, to do that from the Oval. Why? Off. This, the address Monday night... Yes, the country's national security and economic security is at stake, but it's had a slightly more partisan cast than I think a general Oval Office. So does that beg the question of whether it actually rose to the level of an address to the nation at all? And I think that it's it's a good question, um, especially since it's the last time he can do it. You know, I don't think the president. You know, they're going to they're into this again this weekend, and you know, uh, we'll see how this plays out as you go up to the deadline. But you would almost want the president to come out to push the final, final deal. And you knew you weren't at the point of the final deal. You were just at the point of raising pressure uh, on, on, on Monday night. And I think that, you know, there is a risk of going to that well uh, too often. May 1st, uh, Sunday, you might be at home with your family. You start to get your BlackBerry humming from the well, bureau. Listen, that- Sunday night at 930? I'm sound asleep. And what, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> Bring us back to it May first. It was a fascinating night. You know, I was, you know, nine thirty is is past my bedtime on a Sunday night. I'm getting up at two thirty, so I I had been asleep, um, and I heard my home phone ring. I never answered my home phone, so I just ignored it. Um, but then within thirty seconds after uh, the home phone ring, I did hear my cell phone ring. So I thought something might be going on not knowing exactly what it was. So I got up and I checked my BlackBerry and I had an um, email from Jay Carney, White House press secretary, saying, call me. Uh, so I called him uh, and it was a very short uh, conversation. He said, we're off the record. We got Osama, get to work. I followed his direction on that one, you know? Um, and he just showered, shaved very quickly, ran across town. Um, got to the chair probably you know, 15 minutes later, and uh, an hour later, President Obama uh, came out. Uh, although we went, no, I, I would say we, I was, we went on about an hour before the president uh, came out because we had enough information at that time to be reporting that Osama, that, that, that this is indeed what the president was going to talk about. But it was a thrilling uh, night, and that's really, uh, you know, you talked, we talked at the beginning of this conversation about what it's been like up here and what my quality of life and work life has been like. Uh, really, the best part of uh, taking the job uh, up here in New York was that uh, you know I became a full co-anchor on all special 
events, and that's when this job is most special, when big news breaks and you're in the anchor chair trying to help people make sense of it all. And it was, you know, we were on for about three hours that night talking about, you know, the man who terrorized this country for far more uh, than a decade and to both tell the story and to show uh, the reaction of the country and the world as this came in was, uh, you know, was a, a great privilege. You know, one of the things that I thought was interesting was just standing back out of the news business, watching uh, the communications unfold in the days following. Uh, the, the narrative started to come out. There were things that needed to get walked back. Uh, as you were reporting on that and thinking back, perhaps, on uh, having had a hand in presidential communications, maybe not around something quite like no, this. Not like this. Not, not, like, not this, like this. No. Um, nor I, although in the time that I spent after working with you, we were ever prepared for this night that might come uh, where Osama bin Laden had been killed or captured. Uh, this team seemed to, to not be 100% firing on all cylinders, although they did carry off, uh, I thought, a, a political and communications win overall. But Jay Carney's had his trouble, uh, I think, feeling his way into being a White House press secretary. What's your take on how they are doing, both from a from the perspective of being an anchor at ABC News and somebody who knows intimately the rigors of the job? I think they're pretty disciplined, as is you, as you all. You worked in the Bush White House, also a very disciplined operation. I think I think in this instance, in the in the case of Osama bin Laden, they lost a little bit of that discipline, but I, I think it's pretty explainable in the uh, exuberance of you know this achievement. Uh, you know, a couple of the briefers got carried away and went a little bit beyond their brief in which then it was, I guess I don't blame Jay for this because then Jay has to go clean up he did. what he other was... briefers <laughs> had, had put out. Um, and, you know, you talk about the fog awards multiplied uh, 10 times when you're dealing with, uh, you know, a, a few guys who are sworn uh, to secrecy and just trying to figure out what happened in a closed compound in the space over the space of 20 minutes that's hard to get exactly right. And I think they did go for, you know, details that sounded a little more thrilling at the beginning than it turned, that may have turned out uh, to be. But, I, you know, I think in this case, the story tells itself. That's right. You know, SEAL Team 6 got Osama bin Laden. Period. You know, one of the the, the, the interesting things that, that I hear is a criticism, and I, I've wondered what, what you might think about this, is that people say, and I don't know that this is necessarily fair, that this president stands on the eyes and the mys. You know, a lot of it's about him. Uh, and, and, you, and I think if you look for it, you can find it. I don't know that I'm compelled to, to that, that that's something that resonates with me every time I hear the president speak. But uh, do you see that? And I know you read transcripts uh, feverishly, and you you really are somebody who plows through yeah, every no, line. I, he he does he does. But you know that's president can't be bashful, and I think it's one of the ways you communicate uh, strength. I think that he's had a, a, a little bit of trouble trying to balance out his his roles in this in this debt fight uh, as both leader of his party and leader uh, of the country and. It's also a process where as much as he wants to control it and as much as he, as he uses the eye, he's got limited control over what happens on Capitol Hill. So that ends up making uh, his words sometimes a little less effective than they might otherwise uh, be. But um, I think a president has to do that. Uh, you know, he does. He's the only person that uh, can speak uh, for the nation. Uh, I, I think he does. If he's going to 
use that platform that he has, he has to be very clear about what he wants and what his vision is, even if he's not going to achieve everything uh, that he wants. George, you joined ABC News in 97. Yeah, I've been there a long time now. Yeah, so uh, it was a time when uh, Peter Jennings was at ABC News and Tom Brokaw was anchoring NBC News, of course, Dan Rather at CBS. Um, sort of a high watermark in the TV news business, if you think of what their ratings might have been and well, ambitions. The, the 80s to, even higher, but yeah. Ambitions to maybe go to a 60-minute broadcast. And and then you, uh, you spend so many uh, years uh, working with Peter Jennings, people like Mark Halpern, and then become... Uh, anchor of this week and now uh, at Good Morning America and uh, it's just been an amazing uh, bridge President Clinton used to say I'm building a bridge to the 21st century but if you think about your time with Jennings to what you're doing today that is really a, a bridge in the TV news business and not uh, to mention going back to my time with Gephardt or Ed Fian <laughs> well we're fascinated we'll be fascinated to watch how how the next months and years unfold at GMA and and into this next uh, 2012 campaign we'll sure you you'll thank be you it's on fun talking to you guys thanks, thanks for guys, being George. with us George so long POTUS. POTUS. history in the making Sirius XM 124 in Washington uh, there are many names that one would know, but we are joined today by two that uh, you should know, and if you don't, you will by the time this segment's over. Matt Bennett is a senior vice president for public affairs at Third Way. Uh, he's the co-founder of that organization. He's a former deputy assistant to the president uh, in the Clinton White House. And also joining us today is Matt Makoviak. He is the uh, president of Potomac Strategy Group and uh, a great part of the punditocracy in Washington, D.C. We're glad to have both of you here, gentlemen. You've, you're joining us on the heels of George Stephanopoulos, but you're here in Washington. George is watching what's going on in D.C. Uh, from New York. Uh, Matt Bennett, what is your take on what's gone on here this week uh, and uh, the great efforts of those on Capitol Hill to try and bring forward some leadership? Uh, well, so far it's been relatively unavailing, I'm afraid, to uh, bring forth any leadership. This has been the most dysfunctional Congress I've ever seen in my professional life. Uh, you know, I'm a partisan and a Democrat, and I was not a big fan of the 1994 Gingrich revolutionaries, but at least those guys were willing to cut deals. Uh, they cut deals on Medicare. They cut deals to uh, open the government eventually and, and uh, to raise the debt limit. But the unwillingness, really on both sides, to come to terms on something so critical is something that none of us have ever seen before, and it's been really a disheartening week in Washington. Matt? <laughs> yeah, know, that could pertain to anybody, but you know I'm talking to you. Sure, no, no. The, we're at an interesting moment because uh, I agree that it's been a dysfunctional Congress. I think that, um, you know, as the president said, I think Americans voted for divided government. They didn't necessarily vote for dysfunctional government. And a couple points. I mean, I worked in the Senate for four years, and, I, and from 2005 to 2009, and I can tell you that the current Senate is the least productive in my lifetime. And, and senators are now saying that on the record, too. Freshman senators are saying how frustrated they are that they're not taking up real legislation. There's no deal-making. Uh, bills aren't coming to the floor. They're in quorum calls. They're in sense of the Senate resolutions. They're in sort of nowhere, nowhereville most of the time. And so what's interesting about this moment, uh, and it's, it was similar to the government shutdown moment, is that you have the, the two divided bodies, and they both actually have to pass something. 
rest of the year, it's been most of the rest of the year. It's just been sort of messaging and, and the Republicans doing what they can on, on jobs and the economy and Democrats not really doing very much in the Senate uh, because they don't have 60 votes to do anything. So uh, that's what's created this this amazing moment uh, where the House Republicans do not want to be blamed for default. But they also realize that they have to pass something, at least as a vehicle that the Senate can can bring up. Matt Bennett, it's Josh. When you watch this from afar, and uh, I'm up in New York today, and I've been in Europe uh, the last week, and so it's difficult to pinpoint exactly where President Obama and the White House may be. Do they do they hold the upper hand? Are they watching what's happening? Do they have to be fully reacted? What are the weapons that they still have to play, or have they played it all out and just have to watch this thing go? Well, you know, I, I think watching the president the other day, one was left with the inescapable conclusion that they've pretty much fired every arrow they've got. Uh, you don't, as president, ask people to call Congress unless you are out of ammo. <laughs> and, uh, that, is, that is such a great point, Matt, because I uh, had shared a thought the uh, about a week ago that we were getting down to brass tacks and that a call to action was, was certainly needed to bring the American people really on board. But for the president to take to the cross hallway in a primetime national address and where there was no news and say, hey, you've got to call your member of Congress, I my jaw hit the floor. Yeah, it was really shocking. And and so to, to Josh's point, I don't think that, that they've got anything left. They have uh, they've rung the alarm bell as loudly as it can be rung. Uh, they've basically said we have no flexibility. We cannot push this date any farther. This will be a calamity, and you people have to act. And so I, I really don't think they're holding anything back. I think they've, they've pretty much fired them all, fired all the missiles, and, and now they're just waiting for something to happen. And uh, at this point, the ball is squarely in the court of Congress, not just Republicans, you know, both houses, both parties. Uh, but I think the White House is really in a position of waiting at this moment. Now, uh, Bennett, is, is this something that third way was actually created to address and the notion that, that there could be different ways of, of governing and approaching these issues? I mean, if you make a visit to the website uh, at, uh, at third way, uh, you see so much um, authoritative, thoughtful uh, writing and ideas that emanate from your organization, and you wonder if either Congress or the White House is listening. Well, thanks for that, Josh. And we try, and we've been very, and the answer is yes. This is exactly the kind of thing that we were created to address. Our our purpose in life, we're a think tank, but we're uh, one that's actively engaged in the process. We're not uh, kind of an academic think tank. We're in more of a, a activist think tank. And we've been saying two things from the beginning about this. One is there has got to be compromise. You cannot govern, in, uh, particularly in a divided city like this, without compromise. And two is, you better act or it's going to be horrendous. We, uh, have, we put out a, several months ago a paper and a, and a graphic called The Dominoes of Default, where we tried to talk about what would happen in terms that mean something to people outside of Wall Street. Uh, it's one thing to talk about how the T-bill will change or basis points will change, but it's another thing to talk about how your 401k jobs and uh, auto loans and school loans and mortgages are going to be impacted by all this. And so we've been really trying to put this in terms that will resonate. And we've been talking actively to folks in Congress that we deal with and to the White House. And I think we've been heard. Austin Goolsby actually has been out there waving our stuff around saying, look, these guys say you got to work, you got to act. But uh, in the end, we don't have any votes in Congress. And uh, 
So there's only so much outside organizations can do. Josh, I want to ask a question, uh, and I want to hear your response to it, but I want to get uh, Matt Makoviak's uh, response as well. Just to touch on the the national address that the president gave uh, this past week, did anybody else feel that we had seen this from a visual perspective so often with the president standing in the cross hallway and that if he was going to take to the airwaves and reach out to the American people, that the Oval Office was the most appropriate place for him to be to reach out and really lay down the gravity of this situation? Matt, what was your take on that? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, you know, there, there's so much history with the imagery of the presidency and and you know it's, it's all based on what, what what previous presidents have done in situations I think what was kind of surprising to me about the whole thing was was not just that he asked you know people to call their congressman which I think in a way kind of uh, diminished the, the the office of the presidency almost in a way uh, as if he was like a radio talk show host or something um, but uh, hey but, careful <laughs> careful uh, but but more so that, that that he made the argument on the balanced approach regarding revenue when when he had already you know endorsed the read proposal which doesn't have that so he was fighting a battle from two or three weeks ago I mean this is a this was an address that was appropriate two or three weeks ago it really seemed out of touch and I think for me as someone who's followed this closely it, it underscored how out of the process he's been the last few days since the Boehner-Obama talks broke down. I think, you know, Boehner realized that whatever both houses agree on, he's going to have to sign, whether he likes it or not, whether it's part of whatever deal he wants, with whether it even lines up with things he said in the past. There's going to be such tremendous pressure on him to sign it. Uh, if it's good enough for the Senate Democrats, at least some number of them, including Leader Reid, then it's going to be good enough for President Obama. So I think the Speaker was wise to sort of almost cut Obama out of it altogether uh, and, and, and realize that negotiating with him was not leading anywhere for whatever reason. Uh, but in terms of the imagery, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, this White House, I think, feels like there's one solution to every problem, and it is let's put the president, you know, in front of the cameras talking to the American people in one, one way or another. The problem with that is that the more you do it, the less effective it is. It, the law of sort of diminishing marginal utility comes in, and I think when the president started in office, he had tremendous uh, uh, communication abilities. I think people trusted him. They listened to him. Uh, I think almost every time he's gone out there and spoken since then, I think it's it's diminished to some extent. And that was never more true than it was during the, the health care fight where, you know, I think he gave something like 40 or 50 speeches. And, and each time he did, it became but, less popular. Well, but at the end of the day, he did get health care legislation passed. To Adam's question and to what Matt was saying, and I think Bennett would opine here as well, um, I woke up on, or I, I didn't go to sleep on May 1st because I watched President Obama uh, announce the death of Osama bin Laden from the podium, from the East Room, with a backdrop of the cross hall. We then watched it again in another address to the nation. And then uh, just last week, in, res in response to where the negotiations were, he took to the East Room and the cross hall again. Uh, upending whatever White House tours were going on in the White House, shirking the Oval Office, shirking that historic uh, seat and desk that presidents have always uh, spoke to the nation about, and also just simply the White House press briefing room where he can walk in at a moment's notice. So I am thinking that they are overplaying and over-dramatizing this setting. Matt? You know it's bad when John Stewart's making fun of you for your process, and you probably saw that he actually made a joke about using the cross hall for this address. He said, you know, he ambled down, we capped Bin Laden Lane, and he walked up there and stood in front of the gold leaf chairs and said, we're going broke. And then they did a whole, you know, riff on guys taking the chairs away behind him. So uh, that clearly uh, is a signal that you have gotten your 
stagecraft wrong when John Stewart's making funny. You people. know what my theory is on it? To be honest with you, this whole uh, address to the nation came up rather late in the day. Uh, there was really no way to say that the president wasn't on his heels here. He was grasping at straws from a communications perspective, um, and they knew that they needed to do something, and so they made the decision to address the nation. And I think when the president does that, it signals, A, it's very important, but everybody needs to listen up because the boss is going is to deliver a message. Getting into the Oval Office, having produced these these uh, addresses to the nation, and Josh, you can shed some light on this too, is not an easy thing to do. I mean, the boss has to get kicked out of the office. Uh, ushers have to get in there to strike the couches. The networks have to get in. Everything's got to be tested. And have then to rearrange all the pictures <clears throat> on the credenza behind. Absolutely. Know. I mean, there are just Take a lot pain. of things to do in a short amount of time. And, and you also have this situation ultimately where the boss is left sitting in front of a live camera and the, the image is released to the networks and the cables are going to take the thing as soon as it comes down the line. And if you're listening to us on Sirius XM 124 uh, POTUS, you know that we bring you live unfiltered coverage of events as they happen at the White House on a daily basis. But in these moments when the president is sitting behind the desk waiting to give a timed uh, statement to the nation, the cables are, are not going to respect the president's, okay, we're 10 seconds away. You're just sort of sitting there quietly looking into a lens, and you kind of look goofy. I don't care who you are, even if you're as cool a customer as President Obama is, and I give him all due credit. Uh, and, and President Bush was never very good at this. Um, I think that they just got caught on their heels, and they just didn't feel that they had the wherewithal to pull it off, and that's why they didn't do it. I bet it crossed their mind, though, Josh. Yeah, and if they haven't heard things like John Stewart or people like us talking about, uh, can you just please uh, give a speech from the Oval Office for once? Um, you know, they, they probably won't do it from here on in, uh, but I really hope that they will. Um, I mean, it reminds me of, we did about, I think, eight to 10 Oval Office addresses over the course of eight years in the Clinton administration. Uh, I, I often commented how, that I thought that um, George W. Bush seemed to uh, relate better to a live audience that would applaud lines that were designed for applause so that he spoke not nearly as well in the vacuum of a teleprompted script in a quiet office. I think that's true. And and we, we sort of lost the gravity of the Oval Office address uh, during the Bush years, but it's time to get it back. Yeah, Matt Bennett uh, is no stranger to the White House having served uh, President Clinton as well. Uh, you know what it's like to be with the boss and be in these these different types of scenarios. Uh, I remember back in 2002 when President Bush, uh, or 2001 when President Bush announced uh, Operation uh, Afghani Freedom or Enduring Freedom, uh, and that that address to the nation came uh, from the residents. Um, it was a unique place to do it, and, and President Obama has certainly, uh, to his credit, you know, upped the presidential game with regard to. Uh, where he delivers messages. He uses the White House in a wonderful way to deliver a visual message uh, to the American people on a weekly basis. But these things really take a little bit more thought and time than just rushing to a camera. Um, does that in some way, you think, uh, harm the, the, the message itself? It comes sort of wrapped in this idea that we're not playing on our playbook anymore. Yeah, I think that's right. And And as you say... The number of presidential addresses that we've seen in in this debt crisis has been so large. He's done so many. He's he's done primetime press conferences. He's done daytime press conferences. He's done the press briefing room. He's he's done the cross hall. He's been uh, 
out at, uh, at events, it um, begins to become common. And that you don't want that with a presidential uh, address. You want it to be to have gravity, and I think Matt's right about that. Well, Matt Makoviak, you're a former advanced guy. I mean, to be special uh, when you get into this situation where you're constantly out there pushing the boss in front of a camera, and Lord knows I went through this with President Bush in 2008. It seemed we couldn't go a day without heading out to the Rose Garden to try and quell some fears over impending doom on Wall Street or bail out this or tarp that. But Matt, I mean, from a, from a technical perspective and trying to get that message across, for people who facilitate this stuff, I mean, this is this is not easy to do. It's not easy, and, and I think you know when it comes to advance, the thing you got to remember is is that people receive messages both visually and 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 through what, what they hear, and visual messages are always more effective. And so, you know, that's why backdrops matter. That's why you know cross shots matter, uh, cut shots matter, and that's why that's why oftentimes when when presidents do uh, do speeches out at events across the country, they have. Uh, you know, two or three rows of people behind them. They want color. They want, and I don't mean color in a racial sense. I mean color in the sense of, of filling Something in. Something that's dynamic, right? Dynamic I'm not standing alone. That's alive. That's that's breathing. That's living. And it, it just sends a different message. It warms up the the, the whole the whole thing. And so, um, you know, I think when when the scheduling office and the political office and and all, all the other you know uh, EOP offices get together and they figure out where are we doing events, how are we doing these things, you always want to figure out is 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 the place you're doing it. And the way it's going to appear on television, sending the right message that's going to help you do, you communicate the specific message that you want to communicate, you know, and, and so so ultimately, I think the, the other thing to keep in mind is, and I, you guys know this because you all worked in the White House, that that the White House press corps um, understands very well uh, and reads reads a lot into the what decisions are made regarding advance and how to use the president and when and where and, and what that means, and they and they, they 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 look at those things, those implied sort of things uh, and read read things from them. And that's how they do reporting. I mean, if the president's doing an Oval Office address, they know it's very serious. He has a very serious message to, to, to convey. Uh, if it's something that's rushed at the last minute, they know that they're nervous. And so that, that informs their reporting. It, it informs them in terms of who they're going to contact and what sources they're going to work. And how Josh, gonna you, you have lived this, what well, Matt's I, talking I, about. And, and Matt Bennett and I have lived this together. And I'm thinking as I, I'm listening to Matt Makoviak talking about uh, creating a sense of, of uh, aliveness to a political event. I mean, Matt Bennett and I, and he can uh, add some color to this, literally, uh, were in East Lansing, Michigan together in the summer of uh, 1992, and we had about 20,000 uh, Spartan students out there in the field uh, uh, in the main campus quad. And uh, Matt will Matt may relate how I, I figured out how to find use coiled mylar and put a stick of mylar in everybody's hand of 20,000 and it created a sea of green and silver. I love that. The Michigan State I Spartans, love that. Right? How did you, you just came upon this idea or had you done that before? Well, I mean, Matt was our lead, as Matt will recall, and, uh, and I had time on my hands, so I took to the yellow pages and found this supplier of industrial mylar and when you're out in the t out in the in sort of the the midwest and you've got 25 volunteers who want to do something you say here take like 5000 feet of mylar and cut them into 3 foot strips and then buy them a pizza it makes for a great day for volunteers right Matt uh, that is a true story. Uh, I remember it more as 30,000 people. Uh, we also, <laughs> uh, and one way we got them there was uh, it was on a Sunday morning, and uh, Michigan State was playing at home the day before, and we rented a plane to pull a banner that oh, said, brilliant. come see Bill Clinton uh, <laughs> over the stadium. But, uh, yeah, Josh was, was a genius at, at um, making crowds come alive that way, exactly the way that he and Matt have described, and uh, that was uh, – maybe the pinnacle. 
You know, that's one of the things that uh, I appreciate so much about Washington. There are so many people who are doing the job today, but twice as many, if not more, who've already been there and done that. And all the experience that we have all had and the roles that we play, whether it's, uh, you know, running a, uh, a democratic think tank that's really solutions and activist oriented or consulting and, and, and solving problems for clients the way that you do, Matt, or even what Josh and I do today and what we talk about here on Polyoptics, there's a tried and true experiential reason for the things that we've done and, and the sort of innovations that are there. This White House, though, and Josh and I go back around this, they seem trapped within the beltway at the moment. They're not getting the benefit of some of the things that Matt Bennett just talked about um, and even letting their people get out there and help them. But we know we're on the cusp of seeing that, though, right, Josh? I mean, the, the 2012 campaign may be flourishing on the Republican side, but just wait until Barack Obama puts on the uh, campaign hat and gets back out there. Well, that's right. I mean, what Matt Bennett described of flying a, a plane trailing a banner over Michigan State Stadium, uh, another tactic would have been to uh, to take a, a, a wad of uh, $5,001 bills and hire some buses and, and have... and hand a, a dollar to a person who would get on a bus. And uh, all of these tactics are replaced by the simple Twitter feed. Um, and it makes crowds exponentially larger. I just hope you have the same level of spontaneity, enthusiasm, and joy, both on the Republican and Democratic campaigns uh, next year as you did 20 years ago. Because I think Matt and I lived through some of the greatest days of political campaigning. And sometimes I wonder if it's gone forever, Matt. Having stood on street corners and handed out leaflets for um, eight hours at a stretch, uh, <laughs> it does make me think that email would have been easier. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but I take now your point. Now that the fax machine is gone forever. Exactly. So given what we've been talking about the past, uh, Matt and Matt, and and what we've been talking about just last week uh, in this uh, epic uh, debate that's happening between the White House and uh, Congress. There are organizations like Third Way, uh, like Potomac Strategies. Both of you, Matt and Matt, have had messages to get out and wanted to get your views into the into the mainstream of what's going on. How do you feel like your message is getting out, and what are the tools you've been using to feel like you, you can create a platform for your own views uh, during this process? Well, you know, the, the environment we're in today is the media environment and, and sort of technological environment we're in today is unlike anything we've ever seen, and uh, it's constantly changing. You know, whenever I talk to college students, I always say that, that if you want to be in communications and politics, the most important thing you can do is, is, is work in the media first, or at least, or at least have, a, have a, an interest in understanding how the media works. If you don't understand deadlines, if you don't understand sourcing, uh, if you don't understand the pressures and the competition that exists in the media, you're not going to be a very a fairly effective flack. You're just not uh, because you don't understand, you know, kind of how to get your message out in an effective way. And, um, you know, the, the reporter class uh, in Washington is insular. Uh, they hang out together. They compete. Uh, and, you know, so much of this is built on relationships. And so I think part of it is it's old school that you need to have relationships with reporters. You need to be able to have, you know, a level of trust with certain people that they can uh, trust what you're saying if you're on background, if you're off the record. But the other thing is that um, you also have to understand how to harness technology and use it the right way. And so, you know, I, one of the things that I, you know, for me personally, I think one of the th most valuable things I have is my Twitter feed with, you know, however many f people I have following, uh, 3,600 people or something like that. That's something I've built up over four years. Um, an older generation doesn't understand it, doesn't think it has any value, uh, but it's part of my brand. 
And while, you know, not every Twitter message is, is hugely consequential, uh, you know, some are. And it's how, I, it's how I draw attention to things I'm doing professionally, things I'm interested in politically and personally. And so understanding not just email but, but, and, and Twitter and Facebook and, and other social media outlets, but also uh, having the old school relationships and understanding of the media industry, all those things are critical in, uh, you know, using effective communication strategies to, to deliver a message. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And I think uh, the other thing I would say is, the environment we're in now is really interesting because for mainstream media folks, the news hole is gigantically bigger than it used to be. I mean, it used to be Rick Burke and David Broder would file one story each every day. And, you know, you had whatever, 14 column inches. And if you couldn't squeeze into that, there was no way to get your message out. Now these guys have to file blog posts six times a day in addition to their beat coverage. So if you have something to sell, there's a lot more buyers out there among the mainstream media. And I couldn't agree more with Matt that uh, Twitter and Facebook and having an effective website are just vital to uh, message delivery. Those are uh, outstanding insights. And, and, you know, they're also, uh, if you're listening, uh, something that you could try on your own as you're out there trying to deliver a message, uh, Twitter feeds are critically important. But making sure that you're listening to the folks who are also reporting and being connected to this communications uh, C that's out there is really important. Uh, we want to thank both of you for being us, uh, with us on Polyoptics, and we hope you'll join us again. Look forward to it. Thank you all. Likewise. Politics of the United States. For the people of the United States. This is POTUS, Sirius XM 124.